If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 14. We're going to be there in just a second. My hope this morning is, uh, is to connect some dots uh, that we've been sort of exploring over the last few weeks. So if you've been with us, you know kind of where we've been. If you are jumping in this morning, I want to kind of catch you up uh, to where we're going to be headed in John chapter 14. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Sujith Jacob, one of our pastors and elders, uh, he came up here and talked about God's heart for the nations, God's sort of passion to see a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation ransomed to be his people, right? That people across the globe would be worshiping Jesus. And so Sujith uh, and his wife have been exploring a call to go plant a church back in their home of India uh, for some time now, and that's going to be happening. And so he came and talked a couple of weeks ago about God's heart for the nation, specifically what God is doing in their life uh, and the way that our church can be involved in what God is doing around the globe. It's a global call, God's work uh, among the nations. But then last week, we went from God loves the nations to then God loves our city. So Josh kind of shrunk down nations to just Oklahoma City and just talked about the fact that God has always been a God who loves the city. In fact, you see in the beginning, you see a garden city uh, in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 21, you see another garden city, a redeemed garden city. That's where we're headed. God loves cities. And it's no accident that you live in Oklahoma City. God has determined the times and places you would live. And he is seeking through his people the goodness, the redemption, the restoration of his city, literally to push back darkness and to roll forward the kingdom of light. So last week we talked about God loves the city. So we went from God loves the nations to God loves the cities, but also our city. And then today I want to shrink that down one more time and just say, okay, so in the midst of the nations, in the midst of our city, what about you and me? Because nations aren't ambiguous things. Cities aren't just a thing. They're actually full of people. They're full of people like you and me, and Christians are actually individual people that come together and make up a body, right? So what role do you and I actually play in this? I don't want to sit in the ambiguous. I want to sit in the real life. What role do you and I play in God's global and then God's local work to restore and to redeem his people, right? That's where I want us to head today, John chapter 14. I want us to begin by reading a single verse. There's a single verse that's going to guide our time together. I want to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. John 14, verse 12, the words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Let's pray together. Jesus, I've asked now that by the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of the Father, you would help us be present in this room. That all the things that are kind of dragging us into this room or haunting over us as we come into this room or hovering in our heads as we come into this room today, I ask that for a moment by the power of your Spirit, you would still them, that we would hear your voice, Jesus, and they would begin to order out the rest of our life. Would you quiet us by your love? Would you direct us and shape us by your word? Would you form us as your people? Would you show us our own role in your global and local work to extend forward your kingdom? Jesus, you're unbelievable. We love you so much. Would you help us now come around you? We pray in your strong name. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was a study that came out by Colorado State University psychology department. 
that suggested that people who put bumper stickers on their cars are 30% more likely to act out in fits of road rage. (laughs) Now, as I say that, there's some of you that hear that, and if you're like me, when I read that for the first time, you have now in your mind an image of that last person that cut you off on the highway, and you're thinking, that's it, bumper sticker guy. Oh, man, I, you know, and then there's others of you that hear that, and you're also thinking of some of us you know, you know, someone else, a friend of yours, and you're going, now it makes perfect sense. I wish the study would have come out years ago because I never feel safe with them. Their car is littered with stickers like a 10-year-old girl's diary, you know, uh, just covered over in stickers. And here was the interesting thing about the study that I found as I read this. It didn't matter what the sticker said. So it could be my, my student is an honor student at such and such elementary school, or it could be my student gives your honor student swirlies. Uh, it could be, I love trees, I hug trees, or it could be, I burn forests, right? It doesn't matter what the sticker was. It was all the same in the study. Stickers equal rage. And some of you are thinking, I have a frontline sticker on my car. <laughs> Just help us, please, right? Rain it in. So it was stickers equal rage. And here was the kind of the, the dot they were connecting. Here was the, the connection they were trying to make. That people who put stickers on the back of their cars are the kind of people, and some of you feel indicted already, Right? They're the kind of people that feel a deep need to express themselves, a deep need to let the world around them know who they are, what they're about, and everyone else just needs to recognize this and deal with it, right? This is the kind of people that are prone to put stickers on their cars, self-expressive kinds of people. As I come to the end of the study, I kind of read this thing because I was just kind of intrigued by it, and I thought, I'm not sure if I really agree with all the conclusions you're making because I actually know all kinds of people that have all kinds of stickers on the back of their cars and it turns out they're nice, unassuming people that are fine enough drivers, you know, fine enough. But here's what we all know as I kind of read the study. All of us know the conclusion they're trying to draw. All of us in the room can come together and know that pressure that we feel to at times prove ourselves. That pressure we feel in social settings to kind of announce ourselves, to announce our worth. Like, hey, someone noticed me. I'm important. I'm involved in certain things. I believe certain things. I'm a certain kind of person. Every one of us know on the one end the pressure to announce ourselves, to prove ourselves, to get our name out there, to build something of a reputation for ourselves. And then on the negative side, you know the feelings and the social pressures of feeling overlooked a feeling misunderstood and that resolve you feel to say, I don't want anyone to overlook me or misunderstand me. I want to be noticed. Deep down, all of us have a desire to have our life count, to have our life matter, to have our life noticed. And at the core, these desires are good and right desires. You were made to have a life that counts. You were made to have a life that's noticed. You were made to have a life that matters. And the good news when we start opening up the scriptures is we find that you and I, these desires we have, they're not random. They're not accidental. They're not coincidence that you and I are just trying to figure out how it is to make sense of our life. No, we find out in scripture that you and I were designed by God to have a life that's unfolding for his purposes, unfolding for his kingdom. And it's there in his purposes, in his kingdom, by our maker, the one who we bear his image. It's there that we find a life that matters. See, the good news is, whether you're a Christian today or you're not a Christian today, your life matters to God. Your life matters intensely to God. 
And so when you think about collectively, at our worst, all of us, our worst moments in life are those moments when we're self-absorbed, isn't it? The moments when we're self-absorbed, when we cave in on ourselves, when we're self-obsessed with our own purposes, our own comforts, our own reputations to kind of just wrap around a life for ourselves, when we're the most self-centered, those are our worst moments. Those moments we always think are going to give us comfort or relief. They're going to give us something in return of protection and security, but they never deliver on their promise. Those are always our worst moments. And this is exactly what Jesus is coming to deliver all of us from. This is exactly what Jesus is coming to deliver us from. Listen, his death and his resurrection announce as loudly as it possibly can that your life matters. The son of God came to do work for you. Your life matters, but it doesn't matter in some kind of bumper sticker, hear me roar kind of way. No, your life matters in the kind of way that what we see in Jesus shows us that our lives were actually made for something much bigger than ourself. Our life was made for something much bigger than ourselves. All of a sudden, what we see in Jesus, what we're going to see in this text today, is that all of a sudden our expectations can begin to rise because our lives were made for something bigger than ourselves. Our lives were made to unfold in the presence of God, for God, and extending the kingdom of Jesus. And this is exactly what's happening in John chapter 14. What we're picking up today in John chapter 14 is actually one of my favorite sections of scripture. It's a heavy conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples. The the last conversation he would actually have with them before he went on to his trial and crucifixion. It spans from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17. It's one big conversation. It's one big event in the life of Jesus with his disciples. And all along, he had been telling them that he was going to die. All along, he had been telling them for the three years he was following him that my death is coming. I'm going to be given over at the hands of sinful men. He was telling them this and consistently they struggled to believe him and they always misunderstood him because in their minds, the Messiah of God would not die. He would reign forever on David's throne. And so when he would say this, they would be so confused. Why do you keep talking about you're going to die? You're the son of God. Of course, you're not going to do that. But then all of a sudden, when we come down here to John chapter 13, they realize, oh my gosh, he's been telling the truth. And this death he's been talking about, it's about, it's about to go down. And they start to freak out. If we were to read what's going on in John chapter 13, they start to be unsettled. They start to get worried. They start to freak out a little bit because they're wondering, what are we going to do? We've been given up three years over. We've given up everything we've ever known to follow this one who claims to be the son of God. He's been hated by many, loved also by many. People are out to kill him and now he's gonna die. What are we gonna do? We can't go back and live our old lives. Everyone's gonna know that we were the ones who followed him. We can't go back and do that, but what are we supposed to do? He's about to leave us. What's left for us? How are we going to carry our own lives forward? This is what they were beginning to wonder. How do we carry our own lives forward? How do we, what's our purpose now? He's not with us. How do our lives begin to matter? And it's right in the middle of all this anxiety. It's right in the middle of all this fear about where our lives are supposed to be headed that Jesus begins to speak in chapter 12. Look at it again, or in verse 12. Look at it again with me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and even greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. 
So Jesus speaks into this very tense moment between the disciples as they're figuring out where their lives are headed. And he says this statement. He says this single statement that has everything to do with how our lives are to matter. And he speaks to three things very clearly. He speaks to his disciples. He speaks to our identity. He speaks to our purpose. And then finally, he gives us a promise. And so for the rest of our time together, I just want to focus on this one verse And I want us to shape our time together around the three things Jesus is speaking to. Identity, purpose, and promise. Look back at the first one. It's just coming in phrases here at this verse. The first one, identity. First part of the verse says, Truly, truly, I say to you, look at what he says, whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me. Okay, so you and I live in a current cultural moment where everyone believes something about Jesus. Every, literally everyone in our city believes something about Jesus. Everyone believes in Jesus to a certain degree, right? So if we were to take a survey, if we were to walk the streets and take a survey, we're going to find a lot of different thoughts about Jesus. Some people are going to say he was just a good teacher. Some people are going to say he was just a good man. Some people are going to say he's a myth altogether. Some people are going to look to his miracles and go, oh, he was just some sort of ancient magician who did a bunch of cool tricks. Some people say he's just a good teacher. Some people are going to say he was a political revolutionary and we get a lot of our ideas we have today from him. And then others are going to come down to say he was really the son of God. But when Jesus talks about belief here, truly, truly, I said, if you believe in me, when he talks about belief here, he's not talking about generic kinds of belief. Do you believe something about me? Like you believe in the solar system or, or like your children believe in Santa Claus. He's not talking about generic belief like that. He's not even talking about believing something right about him and being the son of God. Did you know it's entirely possible to believe all the right things about Jesus, but not actually believe Jesus? You see, I know that because James chapter two is gonna say that even the demons believe and they shudder. Even demons believe, they call him the son of God throughout the gospels when he shows up. They don't really believe Jesus, right? And so when Jesus talks about belief here, he's talking about something greater and more distinguished than the kind of belief that demons have or generic kind of belief that anyone in our culture is going to have. So what does he mean here? When Jesus talks about belief, he's talking about a kind of belief that changes who you are. It changes your identity. It changes the way you see yourself and the way you see the world around you. The belief he's talking about, it changes everything about you. So now everything about who you are hangs on everything that he is as your God. Everything that, you, everything that you are now hangs on everything that he says as your king and your Lord. Everything that you are now hangs on everything that he's done as your savior. That's the kind of belief he's talking about. The best way to picture this is to think about like ropes course or mountain climbing or bungee jumping. Anybody into these kind of things? Okay, a few of you. I hate this kind of stuff, Right? I hate this kind of stuff. And some of you are into it. I hate the idea of trusting my entire physical security to a silly little harness and a rope. That if all of a sudden my foot slips, that if all of a sudden something doesn't calculate just right and I, and I miss the step or I miss the climb, all of a sudden my whole physical security is banking on that silly little harness and that little rope. And I'm not a small man, you know? And so I think about this. I'm putting my whole weight on that rope. If you don't hold me, rope, I'm never going to see my family again. I just stay away from ropes courses. I just stay away, right? It's not worth it to me. Maybe in a previous season of my life when I was invincible, I'm just not anymore, right? And so I just stay away. But this is a picture 
of the kind of belief Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of picture he's talking about, this kind of belief where you don't just know facts about Jesus. You don't just kind of claim to know something of Jesus. It's the kind of belief where you now begin to shift all of your weight onto him. As if to say, if you don't hold me, Jesus, I won't be held. I don't have a plan B. I don't have an escape route. I don't have an alternative plan. Jesus, if you don't hold me, if you can't save me, then I won't be saved. I won't be held. I've pushed all my chips in on the center of the table on you. I've shifted all my weight, everything I have, it's on you. Jesus plus nothing. See, to believe in Jesus is to call him Lord, which means he sets the agenda. You see, to believe in Jesus means you give over your rights because you believe his rule and his reign is infinitely better. See, the kind of belief Jesus is talking about, it changes everything about you. If this is what it means to believe in Jesus, then it changes who you are. What you're now saying, if you say, I believe Jesus, what you're saying is, I am Jesus who you say that I am. What you say about me is what goes. And what you say I am to do is what I do. I believe you, and so you shape me. This is belief in Jesus when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you believe in me. And so I ask, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe, is your identity resting on Jesus? Because if it is, then this is gonna mean something for the way that your life is defined and for something in the way it's directed. And so he moves in the next phrase of this verse, he moves from speaking of identity, he moves then to speak of our purpose. Look at what he says in the verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, identity, now purpose, will also do the works that I do. Okay, so Jesus just says here, if anyone believes in me, that will show itself in obedience to me. This is what Jesus just said. If anyone believes in me, genuine faith will be marked out by a life that carries forward the works that he did. Okay, so pause for a second. Like, I don't know how you read that. Like, I don't know how, you, how that comes off the page to you as you first see that. But I'll tell you, when I read this, every time I come around this passage, it's like when I'm reading through John, I know verses like this are coming and I'm like dreading it sometimes. Because there's something of what Jesus is saying here that's massively convicting to me and exposes all kinds of inconsistencies in my life. Because what Jesus just said is that a marker of genuine belief in him, like genuine belief in Jesus, a defining mark that that's actually present is a life that carries forward the works that he did. Now, don't miss what he's saying. He's not saying that you're saved by works. He's not saying that somehow your salvation or the love of God comes to you based on how well you carry out works. It's not saying that. The Bible's very, very clear that you and I are saved by faith alone, by trust alone in everything that Jesus alone purchases for us in death and resurrection. But listen very carefully. He is saying that that kind of saving belief, if I've placed my faith in Christ alone for salvation that he alone can provide, that kind of saving belief will show itself forward in a life conformed to Jesus. He is saying that. So now we have to ask ourselves a question. 
if this is true, if genuine belief shows itself in obedience to Jesus, then what were the works that he did? Because now my life is supposed to show something of those. How is it that you and I can take the life of Jesus and sum them up in a kind of way where our life can begin to be carried forward after his pattern? And here, if we were to take a study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts of of the life of Christ, if we were to take a study of those, we could narrow the whole life and the whole work of Jesus down to two things. So Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll do the works that I did. And I'm saying, if we study the scriptures, the, the whole life of Jesus comes down to two things. And here it is. He loved God and he brought people to God. That's, that's the whole life and work of Jesus. If you believe in me, you'll do the works that I've been doing. Love God and bring people to God. Okay, so everyone hear this. Because for those who would receive this, this might radically shift the way you see your life. Because what Jesus is just saying here is the reason that you are saved is for this purpose. The reason that God's salvation has come to you is to love him and to bring people to him. So believer in Jesus, you have been set free from your sins, set free. You've been lavished with the grace and the kindness of God. You've been filled up with his Holy Spirit living inside of you to make you effective at this purpose, loving God and bringing people to God. This is massive. Because so often we think that Jesus, his work is all about just saving us from our sins. We celebrate that. We sing about that. Just saving us from our sins. But listen, if, if that's all we talk about, we've stopped short in his saving work. It's not just he saves us from sin. It's that he also saves us to, attaches us to a whole new life and purpose. He saves you to a whole new life. So that you weren't just forgiven of your sins so you could go to heaven someday. Everyone here, you were forgiven of your sins that you might know the joy of loving God here and now in this life. You would know the joy of loving God and joining him in his purposes to redeem and save his people, to spread the fame of his great name. That's why you were saved. That's why you were saved. And so if you receive this, college student, this changes the way you think about your college experience. Because now all of a sudden, if you see the purpose of Jesus for your life, now all of a sudden your college experience isn't just about getting a degree and having a good time in this weird purgatory of life where you're kind of suspended from responsibility. It's not just about a degree or a good time. It's about the works of Jesus. So, So now this changes the way you think about your career. This changes the way you show up at work tomorrow. Because now your job is not just about getting a paycheck or having some sort of job security through upward advancement. This changes the way you ought to see your neighborhood, where you live and why you live there. This ought to change the way you see your marriage, your kids, your friends, your hobbies, and everything that you have. All of these things are given to us by God as good gifts. Everything that you have, everything that you know has been given you by God as good gift. But listen, it's not been given to you to end on you. All that you have is not, listen, everything that you have, marriage, kids, hobbies, families, careers, degrees, 
All of these things are gateways to worship. All of these things are gateways to worship whereby everything that we have, God is trying to draw our minds upward to him to love God as the giver of every good gift, but also then draw us outward, upward and outward, then outward toward people around us and bringing people to him. Everything you have is a gateway for worship, upward toward God, outward toward people. Everything. And so again, for those who would receive this, This could radically change your life because what's hidden here is an unshakable, immovable purpose. Because no matter what comes into your life, by what Jesus is saying, no matter what comes in, no matter what passes through the sovereign hands of God into your life, through every season of your life, among all the things that God is doing, you and I can rest assured that he's doing at least two things. Through every season of our life, he's moving us to more deeply love him and more deeply love those around us that they might too know him. We can rest. That's exactly what he's doing through. You're wondering why your life is the way it is. Part of the reason he's through those things, trying to teach you to love him more. And there's people around you that want to hear your story and the way he's sustaining and giving you grace. It's upward and it's outward. And so it's true. Genuine belief in Jesus will be marked by obedience to Jesus. This is not optional for the Christian life. This is not optional. This is not some sort of item on, obedience is not some item on the buffet line of discipleship. I want, I want seconds of grace. I want thirds of forgiveness. I want fourths of heaven, but I'll take none obedience. That's just not how it works. If you believe me, You'll do the works I've been doing. Belief in Jesus shows itself forward in the works of Jesus. But there's one final thing he wants to give us this morning. There's one final thing. He speaks to identity. He speaks to purpose. And then finally, he's going to give us a promise in all of this. Look again at the verse. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Okay, is everybody with me? Because I don't know how long you've had in church or reading the Bible. I'm not sure if you ever read this verse. But what Jesus just said here ought to cause our eyes to widen. What Jesus just said here ought to cause our hearts to skip a beat for a second. Because Jesus just said that those who believe him will carry forward the works that he did. And by doing so, you and I will do greater works than these. What? Like this is one of those verses that ought to cause you to go, I, I got to give every commentary I can find. I got to get every sort of biblical scholar around me. I need to call my community group. What the heck did I just read on the pages of scripture? This is what this verse ought to do. So what is Jesus saying here? Because often when we read this, all our minds start immediately going to miracles, right? We start immediately going to miracles, feeding people, healing people, walking on water. Is Jesus saying that if I really believe him and do the works that he did, that I'm going to do that stuff too? And that if I don't, then I don't believe him? Let me try to bring some clarity around this. 
we certainly believe Jesus still works in miraculous ways today through his people. People are still healed up. People still feel the work of God in their life in ways that were unexpected and unexplainable. That's absolutely true. But when Jesus is saying this, what he's doing primarily is giving us a promise that you and I will actually be effective in the purpose that he's given to us. He's giving us a promise. He's not just saying, hey, if you believe in me, you're gonna have a new identity and you're gonna do some stuff that I've been doing and good luck with all that. That's not what he's doing. He's actually now giving us a promise that we'll be effective in the purpose that he's given to us to love God and to bring people to God. But there's still a question I feel like I have to answer on this when I'm studying this. I go, but how do you call that a greater work? (laughs) So I say, how do you call that a greater work? Well, consider this. When Jesus said this, he was about to accomplish the salvation of the world. He was literally having the last conversation with his disciples before he was about to be betrayed, arrested, and taken to trial, eventually crucified, crucified and resurrected from the dead. He was about to accomplish the salvation of the world. And then we see in scripture that after his resurrection, he would outpour the Holy Spirit on everyone who would believe. Look at down just a few verses after where we are in verse 12 to verse 16. It says this, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him believer, you know, this spirit of truth, you know, this helper, look at what it says for he dwells with you and he will be even in you, in you. So this is huge. Because before this moment, when Jesus says this, no one in the history of the world had ever known the Holy Spirit like this. No one in the history of the world had ever known the outpouring and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like this. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Jonah, not Joshua, not any Old Testament hero that you love. No one had ever known the Holy Spirit like this. And so now you and me and every believer living on this side of the resurrection has the precious power of God living inside of us. The presence of God lives inside of everyone who believes in Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in my body, your body, to lead you in loving God and bringing people to God. And when Jesus says greater works will you do, he's referring to the fact that your works of love and you're speaking about his salvation to those around you in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your friends, in your family, your works of love and you're speaking about him are the greater works that he came to accomplish because he wants the proclamation of his kingdom. It's greater works. So let me make this very, very practical. This is why the Holy Spirit living in us is exactly why when we pray for our city, this is why we can pray with confidence that God might actually do something crazy among us. This is why, because tomorrow morning, 3,000 people from Frontline Church alone, 1,500 people from the downtown congregation alone will be scattered throughout this city filling up classrooms and neighborhoods and board meetings and restaurants and coffee shops and a thousand other places that you go in your free time. 
And every one of you, as you scatter throughout this city, 3,000 from our church, 1,500 just from these services, filled up with the Holy Spirit of a living God and the message of the crucified and resurrected Son of God. This is why we can have hope on this. That God would actually do something through us and his global purposes that our role matters. Did you know there are people right now in your life, some of them you already know, and some of them you might meet later today. And they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They don't know his love. They don't know his forgiveness. They have no idea about his presence in their life and his healing. Some of these people you know, and some of them you will have yet to meet. And here's what's fascinating about them. God has already purposed, among these people I'm talking about, he's already purposed to save them. He's already purposed to save them from before the foundation of the world, and they don't know it yet. (laughs) They have no idea what's coming for them. Jesus is about to blow their lives up And they don't know it yet. Their lives aren't up for grabs. Their lives aren't negotiable. Their salvation is sure and it's fixed. They just don't know it yet. So you ask, how do you have that kind of confidence about these people? There's one verse I want to show you and we'll be done today. John chapter 10, verse 16. This verse blows my mind. John 10, verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's, referring, he's talking about sheep here as his people. I, he's, he himself is the great shepherd. I have other people, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning they're not here right now. I have other sheep not of this fold. Look at what he says. This is fascinating. I must bring them also. Here's what I know about when you resurrected from the dead. What you want, you get. When you're resurrected from the dead after being in there three days, if you want something, you're going to get it because you can't be trumped anymore. Jesus says, I must bring them also. And this is so fascinating to me, especially in the midst of our cultural moment of pluralism and secularism. Look at what he says. I must bring them also. They will listen to me. (laughs) They will. They will listen to me. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. So God is saying that there are people all scattered throughout our city. Some of them are your family members. Some of them are your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your coworker. Some of them are your friends. Some of them are people you have yet to meet and their salvation is sure. It's fixed. It's not negotiable. They will be saved. They don't know it yet because Jesus must bring them also and they will listen to his voice. The son of God never wastes a drop of his blood to save his people. So now we end by saying, how's he going to do it? How's he going to reach them? We're looking at them. You and me. This is God's plan A, to save people through gospel proclamation. Did you realize there were 12 fishermen in the Middle East 2,000 years ago who shared their story with someone else? And from person to person to person to person to person to person, from 12 fishermen in the Middle East all the way down to your grandfather or your Sunday school teacher who shared with you, then you believed. 
this is God's plan A. And it seems to be working. You say, yeah, but you don't know me, man. You don't know my story. I don't know what to say in those moments. I'm not gonna sure how I'm gonna speak to that. Listen, here's what I wanna say to those kind of anxieties because I have them too. Jesus knows your story and it's your story on purpose. He intends to use your story to proclaim to those around you his perfect patience and grace. Yeah, but I don't know what to say in those moments. Me either. I I never know what I'm going to say in any given conversation. You do like every conversation. You read and react and you respond, but you do so according to your gospel convictions. I don't know what I'm going to say either. You say, yeah, but I really don't know how to talk about this stuff. Here's what I'll say. Jesus wasn't stupid when he saved you. He knew exactly who he was saving. He knew exactly the anxieties you would have, yet he still gave you this, this promise. He still gave you this purpose and he didn't remove it for a single second. He's commissioning every single one of us. So in my life, here's something I just find fascinating and here's something that's messed me up this week. I've been doing ministry for 13 years now. And in those 13 years, I've had people come into my office or come to me at different points and confess all kinds of sin that's wrecking out their life. But I've never had anyone come in and confess the sin of a repeated refusal to share the gospel. And I'm in the same boat with you. I've never, I've had adultery. I've had all kinds of addictions. I mean, I've had, you you name the things confessed. Things that ought to be confessed, ought to be worked through. And there's grace for every one of those things. But, But somehow we think this is not a sin. But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say, if you believe me, you'll do the works I've been doing. That's a marker. And there's a promise that you'll actually be effective in carrying it out. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this message might feel kind of crazy to you. But here's what I want to share with you. There's some of you here today and this is like your third or fourth week to come to Frontline and you have no idea why you keep showing up on Sundays, but you just kind of keep like drifting in here and you're like, I have no idea why I'm still here and it makes me mad, but I'm here and I want to, I want to hear what they have to say, you know? having these conflicted moments and you hear me read John 10, 16, that Jesus must bring them also and they will listen to his voice. And somehow when I read that verse, your heart starts pounding because you know, he's saving me and I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) If that's you today, come to Jesus. You can't escape his pursuit. He's wooing you. You wonder why you're here? because he must bring you also. For you Christians in the room today, as I preach this sermon, talk about your role in God's work globally and God's, and God's work locally to redeem his people. My prayer has been all week that there are people now on your minds that you have to share with. There are people now on your minds that you have to reach out to. There are those in your life that you know I've got to start praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. My question to you is, who is that? Maybe for some of you, the first step is just bring in the church. We want to be a people on the front lines of God's saving work. 
We're called frontline for crying out loud. This is our purpose. Love God, bring people to God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Let's pray together.